0: I have a home, home. But In the name now, of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. My Lord and my God, I firmly believe that you are here, that you see me, that you hear me. I adore you with profound reverence. I ask your pardon for my sins and the grace to make this time of prayer fruitful. My Immaculate Mother, St. Joseph, my Father and Lord, my Guardian Angel, intercede for me. Don't let go. After the glorious entry of Jesus into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, we enter more deeply now into Holy Week as we are offered by the liturgy of the Church a deeper taste, a more resounding glimpse of the mystery of the Passion as we go throughout this entire week. There will be little glimpses, preparations, and we will experience the human and supernatural upheaval in Jerusalem in that year 33. It is really at the very core of our faith. It is a story full of human interactions, full of emotions, words, images. And uh, we cannot uh, go through Holy Week just as another week. It's Holy Week, meaning it has to make a deep impression on us it must sink in deeply it certainly sank in deeply into the minds and hearts of the early Christians they would meditate on these accounts over and over and over time indeed over the centuries they would they would represent them in works of art in works of literature in dramatized versions, frescoes became parts of narratives, devotionals inspired by Franciscan spirituality. There was one Franciscan, Ludolf of Saxony, in the 12th and 13th century, who wrote all about Mary's suffering in the Speculum Justitiae. Uh, or rather it was called the Speculum Humanae Salvaciones, which were accounts of all the, the entire Passion narrative, especially of Holy Week, in which he would have it uh, illustrated with passages from the Old Testament and then showing the Old Testament prototypes of every single Passion narrative there would be an Old Testament prototype. And then later, another author author who is known as pseudo-Bonaventure, clearly influenced by Saint Bonaventure, another Franciscan, he developed a series of devotional moments in the Passion, and one of them that he developed was the 14 Stations of the Cross. Painted figures, uh, statues, All these things are now a normal part of any church. They all have these 14 Stations of the Cross. They were like snapshots of each moment of our Lord's sorrowful passion. And those snapshots became like a family album that were treasured. All those most important moments in a family's history. When you look at your family album... You'll see the wedding picture, you'll see the baptism of so-and-so, and the confirmation, and it seems it's still the only thing that ever happens is Christmas and uh, all these uh, great events, but normal life doesn't seem to appear in those albums. And, uh, but, of course, because those are important moments and they, they need to be recorded in the same way, Christians would record those events of uh, the Passion, and today, in Holy Monday, we begin from the chapter 12 of, of St. John, where Jesus goes to Bethany, where he sees Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, and he finds there with his disciples truly a very warm and loving family atmosphere. He could really feel uh, at home there, he was able to have a good meal. He was able to be to be able to rest there, and well, in that place where he feels you could say comfortable and at ease, this woman Mary. Sometimes she was identified as Mary Magdalene, but in any case, she's just described here in John as Mary. She took a a litter of costly perfumed, perfumed oil made from genuine aromatic nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and dried them with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the oil beautiful image now that we can picture in our prayer as mary took this this alabaster jar sometimes called an alabaster jar or a very let's say already the jar itself was precious and she she didn't simply carefully pry open the bottle and put a few drops on his feet kind of just to give it a little bit of a scent but she actually broke the, the actual jar, meaning everything was just poured out. She was not being stingy, she did not hold back, she did not keep any for herself, for a future occasion. She just, she just gave it all, gave it all to Jesus. And the result, of course, of her generosity and we can imagine she must have gone to the market to buy this. She would have waited for the right, the you know, the right perfume. She, she would have gotten a special place where she could get this. And they, they would have said, no, no, this is very expensive. This is not for you. And, and she managed to save up to buy this. But of course, the result of breaking that jar, it wasn't a huge jar. It was just a little flask, literally. But of course, the, the entire... A room, the entire house, was filled with the aroma, the beautiful scent. In other words, it filled not only Jesus himself, but everybody could smell this. And it was a pleasant odor. It was a a wonderfully attractive perfume that did not simply cover over a bad smell. Uh, When you have a perfume that simply covers a bad smell it uh it, it the mixture nevertheless i don 't know it doesn 't work right but uh, it it made you want to be there after all, I suppose that 's part of the attractiveness of perfume, it makes you want to be with the person, it makes you want to you know come close to them they they 're somehow rendered attractive to you, but if they put on too much, then it repels you right so but uh, <laughs> And uh, that happens. Sometimes people just like, whoa, you know, and they have to do that with cheap perfume. But but expensive perfume, you just need to put a little bit. And you notice this also after a long day at work or at studies, you come home and you enter the home and you smell the cooking. There's something, there's food being prepared for you. And you say, ah, oh, we're having pork chops. Ah, oh, we're having, uh, you can tell, it's already you can tell what the administration has prepared i can I can usually tell I mean uh, there, uh, there are french fries, oh, I can smell the whatever it is right, and uh, it 's also attractive, you say,, oh, but not only is it attractive because of the food itself, but also you sense that somebody has slaved away for you. you feel a sense of gratitude that somebody has worked hard at preparing you. Not only a meal but a warm meal um, uh, something appealing and you're hungry and uh, and you know not only that but uh, you'll have it together with others and uh, somebody is slaved away and all that is evoked in a simple whiff that you get as you enter enter the door mm? you're not even in the you're not even in the dining room yet uh, it's just a slight suggestion it just touches you there. Mm? And uh, other times you come into a room and it's very very clean, the place has been dusted. Maybe you smell a little bit of the windex on the on the on the windows, and uh, it's you know. They used to joke with me. They used to say airwick, airwick, because there used to be this you know this stuff they they spray. It's an air freshener called airwick, and um, so but. Um, uh, You know, it's a good smell, but it also reminds you of the hard work that somebody undertook to clean your room and to have prepared it and uh, dedicate those hours with love and dedication. And here, too, one senses that with Mary. And above all, as she is breaking open that genuine aromatic nard, she is also weeping. She is expressing her sorrow. Meantime, Judas of Iscariot is um, complaining about this. He thinks it's a waste to him. He has a different mindset. He has a different calculation. He's just calculating how he can get something out of this. And this seems to be a waste. It's a waste. And of course... Um, the Lord defends this woman. He says that, leave her alone, let her keep this for the day of my burial. You always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. Well, of course, uh, that was the anointing that he needed for his burial, because later on he would not be anointed. He would not be anointed, even though they brought a hundred pounds full of uh, well not so much anointing but you know spices the idea of the spices being that of course to cover the smell but his body did not know corruption that was the whole point of putting spices and other other things on on a dead body it was kind of like to 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 hold off the the process of death and corruption but it was, it would have been had they done that for the Lord, it would have been completely in vain, because he was—he went to the dead, he, his body was, was still present with the divinity. So the body never smelled bad, it never smelled bad. The smell was still there from Mary's anointing. But it did have to be anointed and this is where it happened. That's why he makes reference to his own burial. It seems that nobody really picked up on this. And um, what we do see, however, here is Mary's humility and her magnanimity that come together, that sort of converge. How Humility and magnanimity can bring together uh, and there are um, sort of together are in opposition, humility, and magnanimity to, um, let's say, faint-heartedness and stinginess, or pride and, and stinginess. But she is generous, she is magnanimous, and that magnanimity fills the air of the house. So as we do our prayer here this evening, and as we contemplate the reality of Holy Week, and we see this woman showing such such generosity, changing the whole atmosphere of the home, we can ask ourselves, what magnanimity actually is? What does it mean? Am I a magnanimous person, or am I rather like Judas? Do I tend to be very stingy with my time, stingy with my things, thinking I can't give anything, I don't have anything, so I can't, I just keep all things for myself, especially my time. And of course, it means we have to understand what magnanimity really is. It is described by St. Thomas as the expansion of the Spirit towards undertaking great things the expansion of the Spirit. And one who expects great things of himself makes himself worthy of of it and is thereby magnanimous. If our life is a life in which we dream of undertaking great projects, then we are a magnanimous person. We don't just hunker down and protect ourselves. Because... The danger in our life and in others, of course, is, is that we can become pettily, petty, petty. What is it to be petty? It means to be overly concerned about secondary things, about things that we, we, we get obsessed about, things that are not that important. But the magnanimous soul does not get concerned with everything that comes along. But only with the great things that are suitable. Those are the things that the magnanimous soul is concerned about. Even small things is concerned about them insofar as they are occasions for acts of love. Ultimately, the highest glory is the glory of heaven. The Summa Theologica by St. Thomas says, if one disdains glory in such a manner that he makes no effort to do that which merits glory, that action, he says, is blameworthy. If you do not act in a way that merits glory, that's blameworthy. It's the opposite. It's It's being narrow-minded, being focused in just on a small, attainable little goal. Joseph Pieper, a famous uh, German philosopher and theologian, describes magnanimity beautifully in his book on the virtues. He said, it's... Undaunted uprightness. He says, undaunted uprightness is the distinctive mark of magnanimity. Undaunted uprightness. While nothing is more alien to it than this. To be silent out of fear about what is true. To be silent out of fear about what is true. One who is magnanimous completely shuns flattery and hypocrisy, both of which are the issue of a of a mean heart. If you if you like flattery, if you like hypocrisy, you're you got a mean heart. That's why sometimes we say that this, this person has a good heart we sense that there's generosity, that there's magnanimity. When we say she has a good heart, it doesn't mean she's brilliant, it doesn't mean she's she's super uh, capable, it means she has magnanimity. He says, the magnanimous person does not complain for his heart, does not permit him to be overcome by any external evil. That's a beautiful thing. We can calculate that, how often we do complain. Oh, this didn't go well. Oh, it's cold. Oh, I have this issue. This person is a pain in the neck. Right? That sounds like we're complaining. And maybe it's legitimate. They are, quote-unquote, evils that are external. But the magnanimous soul does not get overcome by those evils. We have to ask the Lord now to expand our heart. Make us break the alabaster jar. He says, magnanimity encompasses an unshakable firmness of hope, a plainly defiant certainty that thorough calm of a fearless heart a thorough calm of a fearless heart the magnanimous person submits himself not to the confusion of feelings or any human being or to fate but only to God only to God and uh, There is, of course, if we look at this account, there is a further step, not so much beyond magnanimity, but a further step that expresses that magnanimity, is that she poured out this costly nard, this perfume, meaning it was best quality, it was, you know, number one, five star, and that... Is also an act of magnificence. Magnificence. This is the high and truly noble propensity to render visible in a splendid manner a lofty thought in solemn celebration. Magnificence. We do things beautifully if only by decorating the altar beautifully. St. Josemaria loved the altar to be, or the oratory to be magnificent. That is, that we get the best that we can, the best candlesticks, the best tabernacle, the best altar cloths, the best flowers. He has many, many examples of how he liked that. That's magnificencia. By carrying out great achievements in imagery or construction, this virtue is, as St. Thomas called it, Manificentia. And today we don't uh, designate it that much with a single word, but our father used to use another expression that you could perfectly apply here to Mary he said that uh, that we have to be what he described as be aristocrats of love. Aristocrats of love. Now this phrase, to be an aristocrat of love, is a phrase that was originally used by a, a friar of that time. His name was Fray Justo Perez de Urbel, a Dominican friar, in a poem on how the atmosphere of monasteries of his time ought to be about the monks they had to be he said aristocrats of love because they had given up you could say you know family life they had given up marriage and so forth and living apostolic celibacy but they were truly uh, aristocrats of love Saint Osrea said well this could be applied to all of us to priests to laymen, to women. Meaning that we too are contemplatives in the middle of the world, but we, we maybe we have forsaken a a human love, but we are still aristocrats, aristocrats of love, aristocrats, aristocracy, aristos, like Aristotle, the best. It means the best, right? premium quality, pro. You don't just get a MacBook. You get a MacBook Pro. Right? You get you get AirPod Pros. I don't know if they have those, but uh, you get a Mac Mac. Uh, what do you call this uh, thing? Uh, AirPad Pro. Like boom, high level. Why? Because the aristocracy was, of course, traditionally seen as the noble class, usually emanating from you know, the ruling monarch or from people that were uh, of very educated tastes and in manners, in beliefs. And of course, the French Revolution reacted severely against this class of the aristocracy because they had kind of become out of touch with the working classes, the poor people. They were just completely out of touch. They never, you know, they ate cake, so to speak, as Maria Antoinette said, and they didn't seem to have any propensity, any commiseration for the lot of the poor. They didn't seem to care about them. So they went off and killed all the aristocrats. They obviously didn't care about the aristocrats. But even they were so angry against the aristocrats that on the façade of Notre Dame in Paris, they went off and lopped off the heads of any kings that they saw on that facade. And these were Old Testament kings. King David and uh, Saul were all there. They lopped off their heads because they thought, well, maybe those are actually aristocrats. But they were King David, man. What's, what's your problem? You know? but, and uh, they thought they were French kings, but they were not. Regardless, regardless, the aristocracy were a special class, and they did have these privileges. And they were noble; they ruled in these large castles. And sometimes the name was hereditary. And well, the French Revolution didn't like that because it gave them a status, but just by being in a form uh, in a family. So if you if you're French and you are de something. Monsieur De, whatever, then you're definitely noble. And if you were in Germany, if you were von Reichenau or something like that, von Hildebrand, well, there you were definitely, you know, aristoc- aristocracy. So they, in those kind of, many of those countries, they, they banned the use of von or De because they, they want to make everybody the same. It's fine because we're not in a special class. We're not in a special class. We're like everybody else. We're just like everybody else. We're not Vons or Does or whatever other um, aristocratic title we might have. But our love has to be special. It has to be, we have to be aristocrats of love. We're not aristocrats necessarily in society. We don't have necessarily special place in society. We're like everybody else, but there's a special aristocracy in the way we love. Saint Israel used to speak about locuras de amor. Locuras de... Craziness of love. We do things not because they make sense humanly, but we just are crazy out of love. We, we can just do, undertake great things in youth, give our lives break the alabaster jar, pour the perfume art out with our benevolent gaze towards others, wide-ranging, generous, full of hope despite repeated errors, conscious of, our, of the true worth of the people in front of us, inviting them right, to go higher, to give of, the, of themselves. It's a, magnanimity is essential, really, for living with others. We have to have that grandeur of soul. Magnanimity helps us to overcome any difficulty. And it has been said that one ends up being that which others, th- others think he is or has the capacity to be. The contrary is the, the narrow minded person, the narrow minded soul, the negative vision of others, small judgment, pusillanimity, poor vision. All that impedes us from flying higher. We stay like, kind of like rednecks, so we're just our own little corner of the woods. So we, we can be petty just thinking about our area. So we, we ask this um, never to be, as we, as we enter now, you know, in the Holy Week, never to be pusillanimous, not judging others. Um, it's, really, it's really a virtue that can be applied to everything we do, magnanimity. It colors and affects all the other virtues. You could say it gives them fragrance. It gives them color and fragrance. Beauty, good smell, like the woman of the alabaster jar. She generously poured out her perfume on the Lord, not holding anything back. Maybe during this Holy Week, we can see where and how we've been holding back so we can make generous decisions and help others too, help others, open others to the great uh, challenge of giving themselves completely. I thank you, my God, for the good resolutions, affections, and inspirations you've communicated to me in this meditation. I ask you help to put them into effect. My Immaculate Mother, Saint Joseph, my Father and Lord, my Guardian Angel, intercede me.